Our sermon text is just one verse this morning, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. But let's read the first 10 verses to set that verse in its context. So let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith." And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word to each of our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, your word which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would sweeten this part of your word in our hearts and in our lives, that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that we have, uh, you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling you have given to us, and that we might honor you more along the path of life. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, your Son and our Savior, who reigns together with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, it's been a while, um, not since I've been here, but since I was a pastor. That was back in the um, uh, late 80s. And, And I distinctly remember one of the challenges for me being a pastor, was this question, uh, what do I preach on next? Uh, I pastored a congregation about this size, traditional Presbyterian church. Um, We had a morning worship service. We had an evening worship service. I preached at both of them. I also taught Sunday school and uh, taught a midweek Bible study. So it was always on my mind, what do I preach on next? And uh, at any rate, I'm not a pastor of a local congregation anymore, so I don't much deal with that question. But still, even as a pulpit supply preacher, I'm I'm often thinking of what do I preach on next? And I actually get inspiration, not kind of in the technical biblical sense of like the Bible being inspired, but I get inspiration for sermons from a variety of sources. Um, Sometimes I'm reading a book. And as I'm reading a book, I get an idea for a sermon. 
sometimes I am studying the Bible for one reason or another, class preparation, and as I'm really kind of noodling over a particular text, I get uh, some thoughts for a sermon. Sometimes I get thoughts for a sermon from a sermon. Uh, This year in chapel in the spring, uh, as is always the case, three chapel services are devoted to what we call senior sermons. The senior class picks three people out of the class that they want to preach in chapel, and uh, then our dean of chapel uh, helps shape those three. And this year it was on the Heidelberg Catechism of guilt, grace, and gratitude. And so it was the last chapel... For some of these students, it was their last chapel at RTS ever, and uh, Steve Kang was selected to preach on gratitude, and his text was Ephesians 2.10. And the question that he asked in his sermon was simply, why good works? And uh, Steve is one of those students that I not only consider a good student, but somebody that I consider a friend that I have gotten to know. Uh, over his time in seminary, and he just did a wonderful job on this text. But you know, texts are like diamonds. You can pick them up, and you can turn them, and you can look at different facets of them, and there's just an ever-increasing beauty in the text. So I am preaching on just Ephesians 2.10 this morning, created for good works, And I want to ask this text just two simple questions, and we're just going to march our way through the text, phrase by phrase, to get answers to those two questions. And those questions are, who are we, and why are we? So the first question, who are we, Paul starts by saying, we are God's handiwork. Now, uh, this particular word for handiwork occurs only two times, in the whole New Testament. And the other time, uh, in Romans 1.20, it's referring to God's work of creation. We are God's handiwork in the sense that he has made us as creator. Paul says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. There it is from his handiwork, so that people are without excuse. So when Paul says in our text that we are God's handiwork, he could be referring to the fact that God has created us. But here I don't think that's what he's really talking about. He's using this word in a closely related but different sense. Creation and redemption are often spoken of in very similar language. And we not only speak of creation, but of new creation. And it's that latter thing that Paul has in mind here when he says we are God's handiwork. It is true that God is our creator, but when Paul is saying we are God's handiwork, he's saying not that God is our creator, but that God is our redeemer. He's speaking of his work of redemption. Remember, we're reading Ephesians 2.10. So let's just back up a couple of verses. 2.8. It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not by works, 
so that no one can boast. When Paul says we are God's handiwork, his point is that you are not saved by your works, plural, see? You are not saved by your works, not by works. But you are God's handiwork, singular. You are God's handiwork. You are saved not by your works, but by the work, the one work of God. Not his work of creation, but his work of redemption. Now, the fact that Paul means new creation and not original creation when he calls us God's handiwork here is seen when he goes on to say that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Now, the word created, again, sounds like it's taking us back to God as our creator. And uh, it could be, Paul says, for example, in Colossians 1.16, for by him, that is, by Christ Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So, like handiwork, the word create here could be referring to God as our creator. But again, taking it in its context, it's not referring to that first work of creation. It's referring to God's work of new creation, God's work of redemption. How do we know that? We look into the context. Uh, And we see in the following verses that Paul says, verses 14 and 15, he himself, Christ Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might, and here's our word, that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. So in context, Paul's using this word create for redeem. We are God's handiwork. That is, we, our salvation is the work, the singular work of God. Not our works, but God's work. And that work is a work of creation, says Paul, created in the work of Christ as he's creating one people of God. Created in Christ Jesus. Paul uses the phrase in Christ Jesus seven times just in the book of Ephesians. Listen to how he uses it. Just a few verses before our text. And God raised us up with Christ Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 8, it's by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. In Christ Jesus is referring to our union with Christ Jesus. When Paul says you have been created in Christ Jesus, he's simply saying what we say in our tradition when we say that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what Paul means when he says that you have been created. 
You are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus. This new life that you have, this new life is it's a matter of works. It's really a matter of work. Not your works, plural, but God's work, singular. God's work in Christ. You've been saved by grace alone, not your works. Faith alone, not your works. Christ alone, not your works. Paul is just hammering home in his own language this fundamental truth of the gospel. It's a simple point, isn't it? Have you heard it before? Do you need to be continually reminded of it? I remember when we were living in California, uh, there was a preacher, Presbyterian minister. Uh, some of you may know the name Jack Miller. He was a professor of mine at uh, Westminster in Philadelphia back in the day. And he came and did a conference at our church. And out in California, he's from the East Coast, uh, he probably presumed that few people knew him, so he introduced himself. And he introduced himself in a way that I remember word for word. He said, hello, my name is Jack Miller. I am a recovering Pharisee. And he went on to say how how much it is a struggle for us to totally separate ourselves from this idea that our salvation is in one way or another, to one degree or another, somehow still dependent on our performance. We have this deeply rooted in that old nature The idea that to one degree or another, we have to do something. My brother is nearing retirement. He's a couple of years older than I am. Uh, He probably, in his mind, for sure, he would have been retired a good while ago, but there were these things like downturn in the stock market and that sort of thing once or twice along the way. But at any rate, uh, back in the day when uh, they were first building their partnership, he's a, uh, an endodontist, a root canal specialist. There were about four endodontists who built the practice in Harrisburg, and uh, Tim was the only Gentile. And one of, one of, as he was talking with his Jewish partners, one of the things that they struggled with in terms of struggling with Christianity was this idea that, you mean you don't have to do anything? Well, if, if you don't have to do anything, then there's no motivation to do anything if it's all been done for you. By the way, uh, another thing that was enlightening to Tim was to these fellows with whom he is uh, uh, still very close friends, even though those folks are all uh, retired. I've had the privilege of meeting a good number of them, spending some time with them. Um, trust me, they, before they met Tim, at least, they really didn't know the difference between the PCA, uh, Jerry Falwell, the Klan. It's all, it's all the same to them. And that's the way it is when you don't know people, Right? 
It is so easy just to paint a whole group of people with a broad brush. Uh, and you miss all the different nuances. But to them, Christians of any stripe uh, are Jerry Falwell and the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and uh, so a lot of interesting experiences along the way. But if the truth be told, we still have that same thought in our minds. We, we have to do something. And, and the, the way to kind of get in touch with what you think about this is how you feel. Feelings are wonderful things. Because they're often a little window into our souls. When you do something bad, how do you feel? How do you feel in particular about your relationship with God? You feel like God doesn't like me anymore. God doesn't love me anymore. And those feelings are proof that to some degree, somewhere you're still thinking that... uh, It depends on your performance to one degree or another. How about those times when you do something really, really good? And you feel really, really good. And you say, wow, God really, really likes me. God really, really loves me. You're really, really thinking that to one degree or another, it really does depend somehow on how well you're performing. Uh, I remember once Tim Keller said something like, uh, on your worst day, As a Christian, when you blow it the most, God loves you uh, no less than on your very best day because it does not depend on your performance at all. It depends only on the performance of Christ. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God doesn't love you because of who you are, because of what you do. God loves you because of who Christ is and what Christ has done in your place. We always need to be reminded that we are God's we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. Now why are we to do good works? Now, when Paul says to do good works, as I've already indicated, this word works is different than the word workmanship. And workmanship is singular, and this word is plural. It's the same word used in verse 9. Not by works. To do good works. It's the same word. You're not saved by your works, but you've been saved to do good works. Now, this expression, good works, occurs 18 times, I counted them, 18 times in the New Testament. And um, that is 18 times used as a characterization of the Christian life. Just listen to some representative examples of what the Christian life looks like. Full of good works. Abounding in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. 
having a reputation for good works, devoted to every good work, rich in good works, ready for every good work, equipped for every good work, zealous for good works. This is the Christian life. Now, wait a minute. I thought that we were, we were not saved by works. True. We are saved for works. We are saved for good works. Good works should characterize our lives, not as the basis of our justification before God, not as the way we deal with guilt. How do we deal with guilt? What's the other G word? Grace. Guilt, grace. And then how do we respond to grace? What's the third G word? Gratitude, or what's our phrase? Good Good works is our gratitude to God for the grace that has dealt with our guilt. And our lives should be full, abounding, bearing fruit, devoted, rich, ready, equipped, zealous. The New Testament goes overboard in characterizing us as people who do good works. Now, even saying people who do good works sounds strange to us as Presbyterians, doesn't it? It sounds very Roman Catholic, right? It's our Catholic friends that talk about doing good works. Presbyterians don't talk so much about doing good works. Well, it might not be part of our vocabulary, but it should be. It's replete throughout the New Testament. You heard just examples uh, of those 18 occurrences that characterize our Christian lives. Don't be afraid of good works. Don't Rely on them for your relationship with God, but bask in them as your way of expressing gratitude for grace. That uh, having a reputation for good works. If people were to describe us and say what, what our reputation is like, what's your reputation like? Would good works be part of that? Is this how people think of you? Now, there's a person who is really devoted to good works. No, that sounds like you're a nun somewhere, yes? Mother Teresa. No, that's just just the New Testament. That's who we are. Uh, We are created in Christ Jesus as God's workmanship. Why? For good works. Um, Now, but what are these good works? In general, as we have sung and confessed, we can say these good works are obedience to the law. But the New Testament has something more focused. There's an emphasis in the New Testament on what these good works look like. Let me just give you three examples of texts where there's a specific focus on good works. There They're not just obeying the law in general, although that is a good work. Acts 9.3. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha. She was full of good works. Well, what do you mean by that? Hebrew mothers taught their kids not only to repeat their vocabulary, as you well know, but often to define something that is general with something more specific by adding a little bit to it. So the text says that uh, there was a woman, a disciple 
in Joppa named Tabitha. She was full of good works and acts of charity. Do you see the orientation to what these good works are? In particular, these good works are works of love for your neighbor. They're works where you are sacrificing self for the benefit of others. These good works have an other orientation to them. She was full of good works and acts of charity. She sounds kind of like Mother Teresa. Now, 1 Timothy 5.10. Another text that is speaking of women, uh, this time speaking of deaconesses, and uh, we're going to let somebody else decide this morning whether those deaconesses are an office in the church or whether they are referring to the wives of deacons. We're going to let that one go because it's not germane to our point. What I want to say is true no matter which of those interpretations one takes. But these deaconesses are women having a reputation for good works. Well, I wonder what you mean by that. If we read on, maybe we'll find out. My NIV, or no, I think this might be the ESV here. It has a colon after good works. What comes after a colon? Something that is going to be further descriptive of what is before the colon. Here's what these good works are. She's brought up children. And any mother who has brought up children knows that that's a work of self-sacrificial love. I know it's Father's Day, but mothers. (laughs) Mothers, you know, don't you? You know how many times you have had to put yourself second. Why? Because you needed to do the good work of investing in somebody else, and that is your children. Okay, Father, since it is Father's Day, uh, this certainly applies to us as as well, doesn't it? Uh, My youngest is now 24, my uh, oldest is 34, I still need to father my children. Uh, I've told you before that one of the mistakes I made uh, when I was raising my kids was thinking that my job was done when they moved out, and how wrong I was with that, both with regard to mentoring and with regard to financial assistance. We cannot spend too much time sacrificing our interests for the sake of others. That's a good work. You see, she has a reputation for good works, having brought up children, having shown hospitality. That's service to others. Having washed the feet of the saints having cared for the afflicted. You see, the, 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 those in power, using their power for the sake of those who are powerless, to benefit them, those are good works, acts of charity, bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, Caring for the afflicted. You see, not just obedience to the law in general, but specifically that kind of obedience that thinks about how I can benefit others with what God has given to me. 
Uh, one more example that is on that same note, 1 Timothy 6.18. They, and the they here is the rich, teach those who are rich in this world not to put their hope in riches, which are so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly gives us everything for our enjoyment. They are to do good, to be rich in good works. And folks, that's all of us. Uh, Now, if you're comparing yourself to Bill Gates, I'm guessing that none of you think of yourselves as rich. But if you're comparing yourself to the vast majority of the Earth's population, we are way up there in the top, what, 10% probably of the world's population? Um, We're the rich. You who are rich in material, says Paul, Enjoy those riches. They're the gift of God. And enjoy being rich in good works. What do you mean by good works? Being generous, says Paul. Being ready to share. See, the point Paul is making is that you are not saved by works, but you are saved for works. So let's not eliminate good works from our understanding of the Christian life, let's just put it in its proper place. Prepositions make a world of difference. You are not saved by good works, but you are saved for good works. And those good works, while they encompass all of our obedience, they're in particular focusing on that obedience which is caring for other people when they are in need and we have the ability to meet those needs. We have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works, Paul says, which God prepared. Uh, This word prepared only occurs two times in the whole New Testament. One is in Romans 9.23. What if God... Although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath. Prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? Whom he, and here's our verb, whom he prepared in advance for glory. See here, Paul is saying that God has prepared you in advance. Uh, I don't know, you might think of uh, a a child or a grandchild or a niece or a nephew who's going to be in a parade, and you're preparing them for that parade. You're making sure that they're clean and their costume is on and the float is all, you're doing all, you're preparing them for something. Well, God has been preparing you. And what has God been preparing you for? What's he preparing you for right now? He's preparing you for glory. He's preparing you for glory, but not only has God prepared in advance your destiny, but God has also prepared in advance your path. Good works, which God has prepared in advance. In other words, God says, I've prepared your destiny, which is glory, and here's a roadmap. The roadmap is God's law. Doing good works, the keeping of the law, that's the path. It's your glory, 
you see. It's your glory to keep the law. We could say it's your obligation. It is. But it's your glory. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You are being prepared in advance for glory, and one of the ways God is preparing you in advance for glory is by giving you abundant opportunities to do good works. Because as you do good works, your glory is shining more and more. Your identity is becoming more and more transparent of who you are, who your true self is. God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works on the path to eternal glory. And uh, Paul says that God has prepared these things for us to do. I like the New American Standard that simply says, so that we would walk in them. You see, doing good works is not something special. Oh, let's do a good work today. Doing a good work, doing good works is simply what characterizes the Christian life from the time we rise to the time we go to bed. It's characteristic of your everyday Christian living. Well, let's conclude by going back to the beginning. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. And notice he says we. Clayton mentioned this, I think, today, uh, already today. Uh, or maybe Zach did when talking about us as a congregation, being part of a presbytery, being part of a denomination. Not I, but we. Notice Paul doesn't say, I am God's workmanship created for good works. But we are. Now it is true that you individually are called to do good works. And there are good works that you can do that absolutely nobody else can. Because only you have that specific relationship. Only you have that specific resource. Only you are there at that time and place. You individually are called to do good works, but you're not called to do those good works alone. You see, we have been created as God's workmanship. You have been created together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the church that binds itself together as God's workmanship to do good works in the world. And that's why a familiar verse perhaps has a bit more meaning now. When Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, let us consider how to stir one another up to love, see, love of neighbor, and good works. You, how many of you get tired? How many of you get life out of perspective from time to time? Any cynics out there? Yeah, that's why you need each other. To stir each other up. See, this this doing of good works is just not something that we can do alone. 
We need each other to stir each other up to love and good works. That's why it goes on to say, not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. See, you meet together in various ways. This is one of them. To encourage one another to be God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's who you are. That's why we are. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We pray that you would, Holy Spirit, write this word on our hearts, that we might be characterized more and more as those who are full of good works, bearing fruit in good work, zealous for good works, devoted for good works. May that be our reputation as believers and as a congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.